Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. We ask a lot of questions on this podcast. Where did this originate? Who did that? How did this unfold? And this type of curiosity is what leads us to this episode. Today on this episode of The Missing Chapter, we welcome author Chris Barton, author of more than 20 published books, including the focus of this episode, his book called Dazzle Ships. These ships weren't your ordinary battleships in World War I. They've been specifically camouflaged, not to blend in, but to stand out. Now, why would a battleship want to stand out rather than blend in? Isn't stealth one of the main sources of defense? Well, in this case, standing out is the source of defense, and author Chris Barton will show us how one man's incredible imagination and ingenuity led to one of history's forgotten stories. All right, welcome everybody to a special episode of the Missing Chapter Podcast. I'm Phil Schaff here with Phil Horner. Phil, we got a great, great guest here today uh, by the name of Chris Barton. Chris is an author of more than 20 published books for young readers, both fiction and nonfiction. They've been named to more than two dozen United States uh, state lists, received national honors. He has visited hundreds of schools across the country, internationally spoken at conferences and festivals in several states. Today, he lives in Austin, Texas with his wife uh, and author, Jennifer, um, and they have a dog named Ernie, four young adult children, uh, one of whom we just spoke off air is now going to the Netherlands, uh, which is incredible. And they also host a co- they, their co-host, excuse me, of a YouTube series called This One's Dedicated To, in which they talk with other authors and illustrators about uh, the dedication pages in their books. So this is this is awesome, and it's an honor for us, Chris. Yeah, Chris, we're we're really excited to have you along. The beautiful thing about our our course is that we always have great opportunities for cross curricular work. You know, history is the history of everything. But with your book, the two things that really kind of drew us to it is that number one, it invites young readers to get interested in history, and it invites people who are interested in art to incorporate that history element to it. So we're really excited to talk with you today and. Yeah, thanks again for uh, you know taking time out of your schedule to join us. Well, guys, thank you, thank you so much for having me. You know, I I, I tell students when I visit their schools, I love you know finding out the story of how some part of our world got to be the way that it is, and usually it's it's a part of the world that I already knew existed. Um, but in this case, in the case of uh, the book we're going to talk about, it's a subject I didn't even know about until I found myself thrown into it. So I want to I want to address that right away. So the, the the book we're referring to, listeners, is called Dazzle Ships. Uh, it's a phenomenal book, and the the rest of the title is World War One and the Art of Confusion. Um, just to give the listeners a background, we were speaking off air before we we uh, started recording, and the the background of this story was I was actually at our local library with my my two young daughters, um, and they were they were doing a project. I just happened to look over my shoulder, and there was the history section. Uh, of our local library, and it was it was children's books. And I remember, um, I think we said it was Ken Jennings and Jeopardy said, "Hey, read history books because that's what uh, children's books, excuse me, um, because that's really what what kind of motivates the mind to, to continue learning." So I, I looked at all these books, and Dazzle Ships jumped off the shelves. I picked it up and started reading it. I said, "Oh my gosh, I got I got to contact this author 
and here we are. So the focus of our episode is, is based on, on this book, Dazzle Ship. So Chris, it, it was a 2017 uh, New York Public Library's Best Books for Kids. It was Publisher Weekly. Uh, they gave it a starred review saying it was conversational, compelling, visual, uh, visually arresting. So, uh, School Library Journal gave it a starred review also saying it was a fascinating selection that captivated readers. So, I mean, I think all in all, the, the people who pick up this book are going are gonna to love it. Well, I sure hope so. No, we, we, we put a lot of work in, and more years than people would generally expect into making one of these books. And so you always want people to, to, to gravitate toward it. And this really seems to have grabbed a lot of readers. And can you describe to us a little bit, Chris, how, you, how we got here? You know, what inspired you to start with Dazzle Ships? I mean, is there something that, that you saw or heard that kind of led you in this direction? Well, it begins with a book about ballet. Oh my God. Um, one of my previous picture books was called The Nutcracker Comes to America, how three ballet loving brothers created a holiday tradition, which is all about how, you know, why is it that every December hundreds of thousands of people in this country go see this one particular you know, old Russian ballet that began with an even older German short story? Well, it, it's it's a story of these brothers, the Christensen brothers from a small town in Utah who turned the Nutcracker into a holiday tradition. And my editor for that book at, at Learner Publishing, is a, and her name is, is Carol Hens, and we were talking about, well, what do we want to do for our, our next book? And while we were trying to figure that out, she heard an episode of the podcast 99% Invisible that was all about dazzle camouflage. And she said, you know, we, you know, you know take a listen to this. What do you think? You know, should, maybe there should be a book about this. And when an editor says maybe there should be a book about this, the correct answer is yes, there should be. And I would like to write it because I've, I've gotten lots of rejections from books, from that Nutcracker book, from my first book. Um, and so when when you don't have to go through the acceptance pro process, when the editor wants to turn it into a book from the get go, that's a you know, you, you can't do better than that. No. And, and the thing is, too, is that, like we said, is that. It, it draws in people from such a wide variety. It's people who are interested in art, people who are interested in history. The, the illustrations in this are fantastic. I mean, it's such a visually appealing book. Uh, let's start right at the beginning. So we, we know, we, we've already told the listeners that it's, it's World War I, the art of confusion. So if we have some listeners, and I, I'm assuming there's, there's quite a, a good deal of listeners that have no idea what Dazzle Ships are because I, I remember when I first picked up that book, I said, why don't I know more about this? And that's really the whole uh, premise behind our podcast is, is highlighting these areas of history that, you know, World War I is so all-encompassing, but there's, there's bits and pieces of the story that really haven't come together that people don't know of. So I guess let's start right at the beginning of the war. So we have, we have uh, German U-boats uh, choking off Britain's food supply, forcing Great Britain to try really anything or at least something, even down, as you said in the book, training seagulls and sea lions. I mean, there must have been some sort of desperation attempt here to, to, to stop what, what the Germans were doing. I think that was largely brainstorming. I don't know that they actually got around to training the seagulls or training the sea lions or, or making an attempt, but you know, they, they were spitballing. They had this problem where, you know, because the U-boats were sinking ships carrying food to, to Britain and Britain's an island and they 
gets lots of its food from elsewhere, they needed to solve that problem or else they were in danger of having to, to surrender in order to keep their people from starving. So what can we do to stop the um, the, the, the stop the, these U-boats? Okay, so, so maybe seagulls or sea lions to spot the U-boats. Maybe we can have some, I guess, some really strong swimmers with hammers smash the periscopes of, of these U-boats. Again, I don't know that they actually did, but as I say at the beginning of the book, desperate times call for desperate measures. They were trying to find something that would solve that problem of, of the U-boats attacking these these food-carrying ships. And it must have been a shock. To, uh, we, we've we've told this to our, our students. Is it must have been a shock to the Allies because when we're we're thinking about the German U-boats and the technology and how accurate and how fast they were, it was it was a, a daunting task to try to figure out how to stop these things. So you could you could almost feel their angst that like, hey, we will do anything. At, at all costs to, to stop these German U-boats from at least choking off uh, the food supply or and anything else in, from Great Britain. So one of the things that, that we all know, uh, after um, you know the U-boats the started sinking a lot of civilian ships, is we started using depth charges. Mm-hmm. Um, so continue on here and tell us some more stories about you know, how does Norman Wilkinson, who is uh, a character in the book, who is one of the main characters of the book, and it's not obviously just a character in her book, he's also a, a real-life person, right? So right. tell us about Norman Wilkinson and, and how he, he came to uh, this part of history. So Norman Wilkinson was um, a... I'll have to have to look up what his what his title actually was. You f- you forget things after a few years of having you know the, uh, the book coming out. But his official title now uh, he was he was a Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve Lieutenant Commander, and his job was to um, you know help you know help patrol and help sweep for mines off the coast of of England. And so we spent a lot of time you know, out there at the water, looking at the water. And, and this problem was, was, was not a secret, the problem of the, of the U-boat sinking these ships. So I'm sure there are lots of people who were trying to figure out how to, how to solve the problem. You know, it's something else that was helping in addition to, to the depth charges, um, con- the convoy system helped. You know, having, having you know, lots of these merchant ships you know, sail together. Uh, protected by by armed vessels around them, that seemed to help. But there was still the problem of, of these these U-boats sinking the the, the ships with, with torpedoes. The problem that Dazzle Camouflage was designed to to address was, you know, you had these these torpedoes that would travel about a mile a minute, and so the 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 U-boats were aiming, you know, where the ship was going to be about a minute from now. So Norman Wilkinson got the idea one day. He'd gone fishing one weekend. So you know, after after a week of looking at the water as part of his job, he spent a weekend looking at the water for fun. And just in a flash of inspiration, he got the idea, well, what if you could kind of break up the form of of a ship on the water not not to hide it not to try not to make someone think that there's no ship there but if you could break up the form so that the you know someone aiming through a periscope and trying to do it quickly could not tell exactly which direction the ship was pointed which way it was going which way it was turning whether it was turning at all if you could throw off their aim by just a few degrees and it's going to take a minute for that torpedo to get to its target. That might make the difference between a ship staying afloat and getting sunk. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Um, I wanted to talk a, a little bit, um, kind of switch gears here about kind of the role of women in painting these ships. Mm-hmm. And we talk about, you know, the role of women in war, kind of um, translating into to 
social reforms and social changes that, that will come about. But women were really integral and an imperative uh, in painting these ships. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, Chris? Right. So they had this general idea of, well, let's, let's paint dazzle camouflage, these weird wild patterns on, on these ships. But they wanted a different pattern for each ship, and it was a different pattern for each side of each ship. And so they needed to you know, come up with, with patterns. And so they got, you know, I think it was a couple dozen young women who had been to art schools to come up with these, with, with these, these camouflage patterns to, that they could test and see whether they worked. Uh, so this wasn't Norman Wilkinson working by, all by himself. It was Norman Wilkinson and, and largely a group of about two dozen women coming up with, with these patterns that could then be tested and the ones that seemed to work could then be applied to the ships themselves um, by, by painters. And by painters, I mean both, both workmen, um, but also artists. You know, a lot of people pitched in to, 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 for the effort of taking the, these designs from the models that these women had painted to the ships that these, these larger groups were, were, uh, were painting in a hurry. And I, I love what you wrote in the book. Uh, out of all the quotes you could have taken from Norman Wilkinson, I think this one was phenomenal because so many people, when you think of camouflage, you want to blend in. Right. right. So, I mean, all these ships are, are painted a certain uh, color for a certain reason, for a certain purpose. But Norman Wilkinson, when he comes into uh, to play, he says, quote, I suddenly got the idea that since it was impossible to paint a ship so that she could not be seen by a submarine, the extreme opposite was the answer to paint her not for low vis visibility, but in such a way as to break up her form and thus confuse a submarine officer as to the course on which she was heading. Um, so when you think of camouflage, hey, let's blend in. He's like, no, actually, we're going to stand out, and that's what's going to confuse them. It's such an opposite, almost counterintuitive way of defeating the enemy. Right. It, it, you have to go from thinking of camouflage as something to make you hide as something to make the, the viewer unsure or incorrect about what they're seeing. So, you know, I think of like advertising. If I have a great concept, a great idea, it still has to get approved. It still has to, you know, the higher ups have to, to see the same vision that I do. So can you talk to us a little bit about you had this idea, but before it actually gets put into place and people start investing tons of money and time and energy into this, you know, enter King George V, testing, you know, using his periscope, using the model, you know, getting that final approval from the king himself. What was that like for them? So that was that was kind of happenstance. I don't know. It wasn't so much getting approval by the king for this concept as the king visited the studio where oh. um, where Norman Wilkinson and, and his his team of, of of model painters were were testing out their designs. And so when they would when they would paint one of these little models, they would put it um, on a turntable, and then somebody in the next room over would look through through this periscope and tried to, to determine which direction the, 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 the little model ship was pointed on the turntable. And I guess the designs where people most often guessed wrong, those are the ones that said, this seems to work, we'll go with this. Well, King George V had joined the Royal Navy when he was 12, and so he knew a lot about ships. And so one day, you know, who drops by the, the studio but the, the king, and he wants to you know, test out, or he is invited to test out the uh, the, the system for, for evaluating these models. And the king looks through the periscope and says, I think it's going this way. And Norman Wilkinson says, actually, it's going this other way. And I love the, the quote by the king that Norman Wilkinson recollected. 
uh, in his own book, you know, Commander, you know, this is what the king supposedly said to Wilkinson, Commander, I have been a professional sailor for many years, and I would not have believed I could have been so deceived in my estimate. Which I love that moment when I'm sharing this book with readers because you've got this sense of the king, this all-powerful guy. He wasn't all-powerful, but um, kids don't know how powerful the king was. And you have to have, you have Norman Wilkinson kind of standing up to the king and said, hey, you got it wrong. Which is also, it's a, it's a moment of victory for Wilkinson because this, this approach, this problem-solving approach seems to, seems to have worked. Yeah, and that really could have gone either way, right? I mean, if the king had said, this doesn't confuse me at all, I know exactly which direction it's heading. When in actually, actuality, he got it, you know, certainly wrong, the complete opposite direction. So, boy, what, a, what an empowering moment is right. I mean, I guess if, if the king had gotten it right, Wilkinson could have said, well, of course it didn't fool you. You're the yeah, king of been sailing since you're 12. But, you know, a, a, a hurried you know, periscope operator on a German U-boat, it, it's going to fool them really well. Right. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And your, your illustrator, um, Victor, I don't want to mispronounce her last name. Nye, Victor Nye. Victor Nye, thank you. Did a phenomenal job of the look of shock on that page where you, you mentioned uh, where he says, uh, you know, I've been a professional sailor and I, I have been so deceived in my estimates. The look of shock and awe, uh, she really captured that because you can imagine someone, like you said, who's been a sailor since, you know, 12 years old. Like the confidence is just kind of exhuming through him. You know what I mean? Like he's got this presence about him. And then for him to be, I don't want to say humiliated, but probably surprised, right. surprised right. at the very least right. by someone like Norman Wilkinson. She really captured that. So I think that was phenomenal. Um, so, all right. So we, we get to the point now mm -hmm. where King George has been baffled by this. Uh, Norman Wilkinson's crazy plan seems to have worked, at least on paper, on, on model. Uh, you have females coming in. You have men coming in, painting these uh, unbelievable you know, dazzled areas of, of ships um, on their sides, on the, on the periscopes, on, all over. But I think that it comes down to the question, was it successful? Because you could have all these great plans, put it on a model, but until it's out in the open seas and you really, the whole purpose of this was to defeat the German U-boat. So was it successful, Chris? We don't know. The Americans and the British didn't even agree on this. So after the British had started, no, the British started painting with dazzle camouflage around the time the Americans entered the war. And the British did something like, um, I don't know, more than, more than 2,000, maybe, maybe more than 2,500 um, ships dazzle painted. The Americans, I think, had more than 1,200. Um, the Americans said, you bet, this stuff worked great. And this is after the war. And the British said, well, we don't know. It probably didn't hurt, but we can't say for sure that, that it was effective. Which really kind of made it challenging for me when I was writing this, because it's what kind of the, the cliched, stereotypical ending to this book would have been, and Dazzle Camouflage saved the day. And we don't know that it's true. And it took some doing to think, okay, what, what is the right ending to the story? What is this story about? And really the story is about creative problem solving. Right. Uh, if nothing else, it was a morale booster to the sailors on those ships, knowing that something else was being tried to keep them from, from getting sunk by U-boats. Um, but it's an example of creative problem solving. And, and you know, 
maybe the seagull idea doesn't work. Maybe the sea lion and the hammer idea doesn't work. But here's something that, that we, we do think this is the this is one of the best ideas we've got. Let's try this. And there's always going to be a need for that kind of, of creative problem solving. Yeah, and I think I think that's a great point too. Is that, that uh, in times of war, you don't really go by the book. Sometimes you go by what's necessary, uh, within reason, of course. But you know, I think back to the times that we've we've trained pigeons to drop bombs. You know what I mean? So we're is it completely outlandish to think that we're going to have swimmers go up to periscopes and smash them out with a hammer? No, it, when, when you're this desperate, right? I mean, in World War II, there was something called the Ghost Army, where they had like inflatable tanks. The yes. same idea of, of fooling the enemy about what they're seeing or what they're not seeing. And I love how this comes down to not, you know, guys who went necessarily to military school mm -hmm. or, you know, were trained in military tactics. You're bringing in people from such a wide variety of backgrounds, artists, people in Hollywood, like, you know, with the World War II reference. Everyone is, is a part of this because that creative element extends to every field. So they're all playing a role in the war effort, which is great. I mean, it's, it really is total war. Yeah. I mean, it's, you, there was a, a book I read years ago about the, the vast numbers of people who were involved in the moon landing, who had some role in the Apollo mission. I think, when you, I think it, it came out to something like 600,000 people. You know, enormous numbers of people are, get involved, even in, in tiny, tiny ways, for these you know, giant undertakings. Absolutely, that's a great point. And I think that's a great spot uh, to close this portion for a quick commercial break. But when we come back, uh, listeners, we're gonna talk more to Chris and we're gonna get into some numbers here and to, uh, to some student questions even. So we'll be back with a short commercial break. Hello, my name is Chris Barton, author of Dazzle Ships, World War One, and the Art of Confusion. And you're listening to the Missing Chapter Podcast. We're back from the break here on the Missing Chapter podcast with Chris Barton. Chris is talking to us today about his uh, his book, Dazzle Ships, World War One and the Art of Confusion. And he's live from his home in Austin, Texas. Chris, I'm assuming your weather is much better than we're having in upstate New York as well, although we, we haven't gotten into that. Um, it, it depends on how you how you define better. If you mean uh, hotter, then I'm sure it is. Okay, warmer <laughs> and drier than the, the weather we had this morning. Uh, Chris, you talked to us uh, extensively about Dazzle Ships and the role they played in World War One. Um, can we talk numbers for a minute? You mentioned how many ships were actually, you know, painted by the British, by the Americans during World War One. Um, do we have records of how many were maybe sunk? How many we believe were prevented from being sunk um, by that technique? I don't think that that data exists. You know, that's that's a, a big reason why the Americans and British couldn't even agree on on whether it was effective. We know the numbers of ships that were painted. Uh, I think we, there was a very specific number. I think it's something like twelve hundred fifty six American ships and and uh, more than twice as many British ships. Um, but and, and there were a few other countries that had done a little bit of dazzle camouflage in World War One, but nothing like what the what the British and Americans did. And do you think because of the lack of hard data? When it comes to that, I'm not sure. I mean, do, do are there records of this technique being used at all in World War II, where you saw much more extensive use of you know naval fleets and things like that? Was that ever an option? I know that the dazzle was used to some extent in World War II. Uh, it became clear so early on that that this book was going to be focused on World War One um, that I, I didn't I didn't explore that aspect of it. it didn't explore its use after after world war one the 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 use of it was 
one reason why, or the big reason why World War One was so was, was was the time to try out this technology was because of there, there was no radar, mm-hmm. and the torpedoes were not as fast as as they later became. So there were, there are limitations in the targeting abilities. There are limitations in the speed at which at which the torpedoes could go. So I don't know how Dazzle worked during World War Two, you know, with with radar with. Um, with torpedoes being faster, but you know, as far as I know, its primary usage was during World War One. That's a great point. I didn't even think about yeah, that. That's and it's a, amazing how how fast technology moved in that you know twenty twenty five years. You're right. I mean, you're dealing with a completely you know different set of submarines and, and warships. And you said something before break too that that fascinated me was the fact that once once you're aware that the um, the torpedo has been launched. You have about a minute. Is that the the time period you said? I didn't realize it was it was that lengthy. You know, obviously it depends on on the proximity to the ship that they're firing at. But I, I immediately think of you know some of the war movies uh, mm-hmm. where you know Hunt for Red October and those things where you say oh a torpedo's away and you have that moment of just sheer panic. And I want to go back to something you mentioned also before break was and I, I, after reading your your book and doing some other research myself. There was at least maybe not statistical proof that this worked, but there was at least a um, a boost of morale on the people uh, aboard these ships that there was there was a level of confidence that was really hard to quantify versus the people that were the, the soldiers and sailing that were there were sailors that were on other ships that weren't dazzled. So I think that that is something that really has to come into effect as well, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think I think the, the the psychological benefit to the people who are who are in harm's way, knowing that efforts are being made to, to keep them safe, it's it's not it's not foolproof, it's not a guarantee, but you know you're not just left to your own devices. Somebody is trying right. to, to get you through this war. Now, uh, follow up to that: it, are, Do you know are there any dazzle ships left in existence? Are there? I mean, I, I believe some of the of the vessels still exist. Um, the original paint jobs, I think, are, are long gone. But with, you know, in the past few years, with the hundredth anniversary of World War One, um, I know there are some some museums in England that uh, um, had you know, dazzle exhibitions and had new takes on dazzle camouflage. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of the, the ships themselves were were. Uh, you know, were, were, have been scrapped over the years, have been, have been turned to, to something else. Yeah. One one of the ships that was painted in dazzle camouflage, and this is something I didn't even include in the book. There were so many interesting side aspects of the store that I couldn't include. Um, the Titanic, you know, lots of kids are interested in, in the Titanic. And those who are really into the Titanic know that the Titanic had a couple of sister ships, one of which was called uh, the Olympic. And I, or, and I believe that the, the Olympic is a sister ship of the Titanic that was painted with dazzle camouflage in World War One. And so that's one of the many things I had to decide, you know, as fascinating as this is, doesn't fit into the story. And ultimately, I, I decided it didn't. But I love mentioning it in situations like this. And the thing I love about this is um, I had done research for a previous episode, season two, episode 44. I had done one called Hiding in Plain Sight, and I talked about the Women's Reserve Camouflage Corps. And I had come across Dazzle Ships, but I didn't look into it. So when Phil told me about Dazzle Ships in this book, I was like, oh, this is fantastic. Because I it makes sense. Like, I had come across it, but I didn't know anything about it. And it just, it's the beauty, again, of history, Chris. We go back to that, that, you, you know, this information's been out there so long, yet so few people know about it. And we keep unearthing these 
these great stories that that are just so fascinating. And this is one of those those stories. It was just um, it, it was fantastic to read the book after Phil found it and and to be able to speak with you today. It was great. Well, I really appreciate that. You know, one of the one of the books I consulted, you know, for for background knowledge about World War One, and about the naval side of World War One was a really thick uh, nonfiction book written for adults called Castles of Steel that was all about just the naval aspect of World War One, and nowhere in those hundreds and hundreds of pages did it even mention dazzle camouflage, which gives you a sense of how much, you know how much there was to say about even just the naval side of World War I without even getting to this particular aspect. So think of how much more there is still to learn, how many other stories are still to tell about that time in our history. That's a great point. Um, so I guess the question is then, is it just because of the vastness of that war, is that the reason why we don't know more about these Dazzle ships, you think? You know, it, it may be the... Um, it may be maybe the fact that it was not an American invention. True. You know, Americans are pretty good at, at self-promoting if there's something we came up with. Uh, the fact that we, we can't more definitively say, you know, despite the optimism on the side of the Americans, um, we can't definitively say that this did the trick. But also there's just so much there's so much to say about about World War One. And honestly, World War One has um, Kind of historically gotten short shrift, I think, in the way that it's taught to, to to students in this country. Because, my gosh, just understanding what happened during the first month of the war, you know, wears people out. And then to go into to all the details over the next uh, over the next few years. So, uh, I wish we knew more about World War One. I. I wish I wish uh, there was as as much attention paid to it as there as there has been to World War Two. Well, as long as we have authors like yourself who are continuing to to promote these very fascinating elements of World War One. Phil and I say all the time exactly what you just said in that, you know, kids jump right to World War Two and say, oh, I love learning about World War Two. All right. How about World War One? You can't have World War Two without World War One. And it's important to, to kind of lay that groundwork. So so thank you to authors like yourself, Chris. Well, it's uh, you know, the, the, the best job I could possibly have is getting to, to, to tell these stories. That's great. So I think this part of the segment here, yeah. we could go into some student questions. So we actually have three students uh, that were, were eager to ask you some questions here. Um, so the first one comes from our friend Tyler Lozier, uh, who's a sophomore of ours. And he said, um, how difficult was it to actually physically paint these ships? Was there a certain type of paint they had to use or was, uh, was there a certain technique they had to use um, to get all these people involved to paint these ships? You know, you know, this is this is where we we the, the years, the half a dozen years since I really finished researching this book are, are catching up with me. But it all happened fast. All those you know four thousand plus ships that all happened. But Norman Wilkinson got the idea for dazzle, for dazzle camouflage in spring of nineteen seventeen. The war ended in fall of nineteen eighteen. So right. the idea, the testing, the approval process of painting of all those ships that all happened very very quickly. And so the painting of any individual ship it would have had to happen. You know when when a ship was coming in to, to a port, you know, probably to, to unload. Um, mm -hmm. While it's there, you paint it really fast. So I don't know uh, if, I, if I knew at the time you know, the, the details of how the, how the painting happened, what materials they used. It would have had to be something that, that you could work with very quickly. So you know, probably not, say, you know, oil paints or something that had to dry <laughs> a long time before, uh, before the Good ship point. headed back out. Yep, that's a great point. And we had a, a follow-up question from a, a freshman of ours, Joe Aaron, 
who wanted to know more about what class ships, or primarily what ships were they focusing on in World War I to confuse here? Were these all battleships? Uh, were there merchant ships that were using this as well? Well, it was primarily, um, it was primarily you know, uh, merchant ships. It was not primarily military vessels. Now, there were some military vessels that were painted this way, but the, the problem was originally designed to solve these, these uh, the, the, the the, the problem of, the, of these defenseless ships, ships that were not carrying their own weapons, um, were carrying food and were, were getting sunk. Great. Yeah, and that's and that's something that I, I actually brought this book back over to Phil uh, after reading the ending because there were so many things that you put at the end as well in the author's notes, in the timeline, where I didn't realize, honestly, how many civilian ships had been sunk because you, right. you immediately go to the Lusitania. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's probably because there was uh, 150 or so, 120 Americans uh, on the, the Lusitania. So, it, of course, we focus in on that piece. But the amount of civilian ships that have been sunk prior to that was was pretty eye-opening for me, at least. Right. And I love those components to your book, too. You know, having those those pieces at the end that, again, further explain the historical elements in the timeline was fantastic that you that you included those. Well, I, I give a lot of, of credit to, to Carol Hens, my editor, and, and Danielle Carnuto, who designed the book, and, and, and Learner Publishing in general for providing that space at, at the end of the book, because um, I always want, I always assume that there are going to be some readers who want more to the story than just what was contained in the pages with the, with the narrative itself. They want to know more details. They want to know that timeline. They want to see photographs. They want to find out what, should, what else should they read if they want to know more about this story. So there's a, you know, there's, I think there's some recommended reading at the back of the book. What there's not actually in the book is a bibliography just because there's never room for that. So I try to always post on my website the bibliography so that uh, students who do want to know, well, what were the classes of ships? How did the painting happen? Um, they will be able to go back and, and, and you know, use the sources that I use because they, they will have questions that I didn't, thing to ask or were not so important to me at the time that that the answer is really registered. You know, tapping into that that curiosity that a lot of these students have, that's how we make history fun and that's how we we continue the the stories of these these kind of um, uh, histories. Now, and and to kind of piggyback off of that, you know, as as somebody who has a son who just entered the third grade, there's a lot of focus on math and science, as it should be. Mm -hmm. But I like, you know, being able to have an aesthetically pleasing book that talks about history, that's entertaining, you're incorporating social studies at an early age, which I think is is equally as important as your math and your science. I, I absolutely agree. You know, I, I loved all those subjects uh, when I was growing up. I studied history in college, so that's kind of been my, my entry point to to these other topics. But you know, I've written about ballet. I've written about World War One. I've written about Reconstruction. I've been the, the invention of the super soaker, which ties in the Galileo space probe. My next book is about glitter, which covers, you know, more territory than any book I've, I've, I've written before, which is, you know, it's not just about sparkly, shiny stuff in the craft aisle. There's a whole lot of, of social studies and, and, uh, and, and history and culture to that. I think he may have just invited himself for a secondary episode. We got to have you back segue. on. That's a great segue. That's right. <laughs> yeah. We got to have you back on, Chris, for when when we do that book. Um, before we we get to the ending here, I, I can't I can't forget our, our friend Ian Schmidt, who's a, a sophomore of ours. He wanted to know were there specific colors, and I know some of the the um, illustrations were very vibrant. Um, was it basically a, a black and white, uh, or were there various colors? 
you know, you, you know, because of the prevalence of black and white photography back then, you you look at these things and you think, oh, they're these are our zebra striped zebra striped black and white ships, but that's not what it was. We we describe in the book, um, you know, crazy combinations of black, white, gray, green, blue, purple, and pink. And I thought, and in preparing for our conversation, I was thinking about those colors. I thought, okay, it's you know the, the kinds of colors you might see you know looking out at the horizon where the water meets the sky at, at sunrise or at sunset what you don't have what's conspicuously to me conspicuously left out of that list of colors is you now red orange and yellow the things at the, the warmer end of the of the of the, of the, of the spectrum um, and so things that are, are more more water-like or more more sky-like um, you know, did they try red, orange, and yellow and have those colors you know, not work? Was it easy to figure out which direction the, the little model ships were pointed with those colors? I don't know. That information may well be out there. And, and there's, I, I don't think there's any reason for there to be just one book about, about dazzle ships. And so maybe there's maybe one of your, one of your students or one of your listeners is going to be the person who writes a longer version of, of the story for somewhat older readers or just goes into more detail and answers those questions that I didn't answer in this book. That's I don't think point. there's a better way to end a a podcast than that. That's that you know, is, that's what we're hoping to do. And our and our kids love our podcast, and I'm sure they're going to love, you know, reading your book, Dazzled Ships. And and again, I, I know time is is important, Chris, and and we appreciate you taking time out of your day today to talk with us. And uh, we had a lot of fun. Yeah, this was awesome, Chris. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. This was a thrill. Thank you for both for having me. Thank you for joining us, and until next time, I'm Phil Horander, and I'm Phil Schaff. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.